Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to week 12. We skipped week 11 of Tuesday Bible study. We are going to go, we're going to finish up some, (laughs) we're new a lot. There's too much to do in Mark. I've concluded we just are going to have to do this book again at another point. We just, I can't do it all in one semester. (laughs) So we're just going to have to come back to it at some time in the future. But first, let's pray. The Lord be with you. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, in the time of this mortal life, in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty, to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal, through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. That, of course, is the collect for Advent 1, and traditionally, for about 500 years, that collect was prayed, thank you, every day in Advent. So on Sundays, you would say the collect for Advent 1, and then you would say the collect for Advent 2. But every day in Advent, you would at least pray the collect for Advent 1. So I commend it to you as a spiritual practice this Advent. We, okay... I think I'm at the right place. We did not do the third passion prediction, did we? I think we ended, we didn't get to the request of James and John, let me sit at your right hand. We were talking about blessing the little children, right? Yes. Okay, good. Thank you. So we are going to begin in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Then we're going to go all the way through Mark chapter 11. (laughs) And part of Mark chapter 12, by the power of the Holy Spirit, (laughs) we will do these things. This will necessitate a little bit of skimming, but the good news is, I think the small group questions this week are the best I've ever written. So (laughs) that's just me. I think they like, I think they're the best ones ever. So I hope you guys have good discussion. If I'm wrong, just don't tell me I couldn't take it. Remember that we are now in what I call the journey narrative. So we've loosely broken Mark up into categories. We have Jesus' Galilean ministry, which was really the first, I mean, like two-thirds of the book. Then we have this journey narrative where they are heading toward Jerusalem. And, of course, to Jesus' death. And then we're going to talk this week about Jesus in Jerusalem. Mark is going to cover in a fair amount of detail, what we now call Holy Week, the last week of Jesus' life. But at this moment, the the disciples and Jesus are still on the journey. Jesus has already predicted his death twice. This is going to be the third time. Mark 10, verse 32 through 34. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Isn't that such a good Markan sentence? What is Mark even talking about here? (laughs) They were on the road. Remember, on the road also means on the way, an early Christian designation for discipleship. Jesus is walking ahead of them. You can picture this. They, presumably the disciples, were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And because it's Mark, you don't get to know why. Why are they amazed? Why are they afraid? I don't know. Talk about it in your small groups. It's one of the questions. (laughs) He took the twelve aside. So there's a group of larger disciples, and he takes the twelve aside And began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. 
They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. This third prediction or description of Christ's passion is the most detailed. Um, The details about the scribes and the chief priests, and then will be handed over to the Gentiles, that is the Roman authorities. They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. Interestingly, it is the most detailed, but does not mention the cross. It just says it will kill him. The means, crucifixion, is not specified, which is interesting. There's all sorts of reasons we could speculate about that. And after three days, he will rise again. Notice, too, that Jesus says here, this is what's going to happen to the Son of Man. And this we talked about you know, two weeks ago, this is his favorite designation for himself. But the Son of Man, building off of Ezekiel and Zechariah and the Old Testament prophets, is a messianic figure. So Jesus is both telling them what's going to happen to him, the Jesus that they know, and what is going to happen to the Messiah. So... Remember, the last time Jesus said this, well, the first time Jesus said this, Peter rebukes him. You can't, a suffering Messiah doesn't make sense. That's not a thing, Jesus, Peter says. Stop saying that like it's a thing. Here, interestingly, we don't have a reaction from the disciples. We get the reaction on the forefront. They are amazed and afraid but not the response to the passion prediction. Except then, as we read on in verse 35, we have this very interesting request from James and John. Um, I'm going to read part of this, and then part will summarize. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, remember these are the ones who have been designated the sons of thunder, the coolest nickname in the entire New Testament came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Well, that's bold. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in glory. Interestingly, in Matthew... It's James and John's mother who makes this request. So the sons of thunder have to send their mom to make the request of Jesus. Matthew likes to heighten this, uh, the ridiculousness of this. But even without that, it's fairly ridiculous. Grant us to sit one at your right hand at one at your left in glory. These disciples, part of Jesus' inner circle, have just shown him what kind of Messiah they think he is. He's, of course, this is the son of David, the son of man. He's going to reign in glory. And guess what? We'll get to be there because we're part of his inner circle. So this is the... Uh Great question. So Galvin asked, what do the disciples mean by glory? This is a great question. So the glory of the Lord is the splendor of the Lord's heavenly courts. Remember biblical cosmology that heaven is, in in the Bible, heaven is not a place where we go. It's a place where God lives. Occasionally, God's glory will come to rest somewhere on earth. But, but keep in mind this whole cosmology, oh, this is such a good point, this whole cosmology of, of the heavenly throne room with the angels who night and day attend to the Lord, the cherubim with six wings and sleepless eye, the clouds of incense that fill the Lord's temple and the Lord's presence, the glory that, that dwells in the ark of the covenant that is so powerful that even if you bump into it accidentally, you might die. They are picturing 
the, okay, so that's one thing. Then two, you have the Lord's glory as it is shared with the kings of Israel. Because remember, kings are also priests, much of the time, David especially. So the glory of the Lord's temple, the glory of the Lord that is shown in his defeating of the Gentile armies, right? Like this is no Old Testament, no Jesus. No Old Testament, no Jesus. Keep all of this in mind, this, the glory of the Lord in the ark that goes out to battle in Samuel, and defeats the Philistines before they capture it. It's awkward, but they get it back. It's fine. Um, The glory of the Lord that is revealed in the smiting of the firstborn of Egypt. This, This power and wonder, the Lord breaking in on the earth with all the power of heaven is what they're thinking about. So they're not picturing, most likely, I can't get in their heads. I could ask their mom, I guess. Um, They're not picturing, you know, Jesus kind of like sitting on a cloud with one at the right hand and one at the left up in heaven. They are picturing the glory of the Lord sending the Messiah into battle, usually to judge the nations, in this case, particularly the Romans. So so they're on the right hand and left the way a general's most trusted advisors are or the way the king's commanding generals are. The right and left hand of God as the armies of the Lord come in to finally overthrow Rome and establish God's reign forever. It's a rich vision of glory. (laughs) Which goes to show that these disciples still do not understand about the loaves. Because what has Jesus just said. See, this is why it's helpful to study a whole book. When we read this in the lectionary, we read, they will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise again. And then we go home for a week, and we forget that we even read that. And then the next week we come back and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, start talking about the Lord's glory and we don't see. They're asking this question immediately after Jesus has just said the Son of Man will suffer. Mark has just given us the biggest indication that the disciples don't get what's going on. They do not get what kind of Messiah the Lord is. So then Jesus asks them this interesting question. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which, which that I am baptized with? They replied, we are able. This is like, you know, when you ask a, a child, if I give you this, you know, if I give you this now, can you not open it until we're back in the car? Yeah, I can. Never. Zero percent of the time. I remember my mom saying about Happy Meals, we would get Happy Meals sometime, and she'd be like, you don't get the toy until you finish your meal, because if I give you the toy now, you won't eat your food. I will. I'm going to eat it. No, she was always right. That's what the disciples are like. That's probably why Matthew puts James and John's mother in there. They say, we are able. Then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. The baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized with. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. This drinking of the cup is another Old Testament image. We, Jeremiah writes about specifically the cup of wrath, the cup of the Lord's wrath. In Jeremiah 25, it's mentioned in both verses 15, yeah, verses 15 through 29. I just put part of it up on the screen where the prophet Jeremiah says, if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand, the Lord... 
Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You must drink. See, I am beginning to bring disaster on the city that is called by my name. How can you possibly avoid punishment? For I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth. Psalm 76, verse 8. For the, in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, war mixed. He will pour draught from it, and the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to its dregs. And then my favorite is Isaiah 51. Rouse yourself, rouse yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You, have, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl of staggering. This is all resonances that Jesus certainly has in mind. Hopefully the disciples do too, though they you know, aren't really getting it. And they all have to do with God's judgment. Oftentimes, remember, the Lord's judgment is against Israel. The shape of Old Testament prophecy is that Israel calls out to the Lord, judge the nations. The Assyrians are oppressing us again. Judge them. And the Lord says, I will judge you for being faithless. And I will let the nations in to punish you. This is part of my wrath. But I will not forget my chosen people. The Lord's judgment is always in service of his mercy. But Jesus is really is heightening this emphasis here. Like, you know, I'm so glad Calvin asked about glory because this is like the disciples have this picture in their head of a very small part of the Old Testament. <laughs> they like the parts with the kings and the chariots and the, and the you know, killing of Philistines and that stuff gets crazy. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, do not presume that you know how this is going to shake out. The Lord has made a promise, and all of his promises will be kept. And so, too, Jesus is saying, you know, remember Mark's audience are Gentile Christians. They would know the Old Testament. That would be the only scripture they had. They don't, they don't actually know Mark is writing scripture. So they would be familiar with these verses, but also, by Mark's time, can you drink the cup? Holy Communion, and be baptized. Holy Baptism, these are well-established practices in the first century. Mark's church, likely in Rome, would be intimately familiar with both Holy Eucharist and Holy Baptism. And what Jesus is saying to them, he has, see the flow, he has just told them what's going to happen to him. And when he says, can you drink from that cup? That's what he's talking about. The Son of Man will be handed over to suffer and die. And they're like, yep, mm-hmm, we can do it. Most of them do end up doing it eventually. But the thing is, this is still a live question for us. You don't get out of Christianity alive. All around the world, you know... Christianity is a faith that is actually hard for us in the 21st century because we're all so safe and protected. Western Christians in developed countries. But all around the world, Christians are being asked, can you drink the cup? Can you imagine if you are in a church in Pakistan, which routinely get bombed, if you're a Christian in Pakistan and you hear Jesus ask the question, can you drink the cup of which I am to drink? And then you actually take communion. <laughs> and all the time, not knowing what's going to happen to you. We start to sound a lot more like James and John. Yep, we could do it. Mm-hmm. But all around the world, there are Christians who actually are answering this question in the affirmative and then proving it with their lives. And I, just, I think it is an essential witness 
for the prosperous post-Christendom Western Church. That there are Christians all around the world who, for whom this would have a deeper resonance. So the death of the Son of Man is God's judgment. Remember all these images which are of judgment, and God's judgment is, you know, real. It's in the Old Testament. It's, Jesus is all about it. But remember, too, this is the question worth asking. What is God's judgment falling on? Jesus, we know, is righteous. He is found righteous. He is the beloved in whom the Lord is well pleased. So he's not the one being condemned. Unless. The Lord himself is taking on that judgment. But remember, too, that wrath is not an emotion for God. God does not have feelings. God is always what he is. He cannot stop loving you because he never starts. (laughs) It's just who he is. There isn't a moment in time. So wrath in Scripture is a descriptor, not of God's, like, personality, like he's a person. He is a person, but not a human. Um, But of the Lord's unrelenting incompatibility with the powers of sin and death. There is no room in God for any unrighteousness. He is always pure righteousness, pure love, total goodness. And so the Lord's wrath shows the distance between God's goodness and the brokenness of this world and his inability to compromise with it. So this is what the Lord's judgment is going to be poured out upon. This is what the cup of wrath is going to be poured out on. And we will see Jesus will be intimately involved in that. Okay, we're going to skip the rest of that passage about James and John and the other disciples because we don't have time. We're just going to briefly touch on the healing of blind Bartimaeus. This is such a good story. I wish we had time to do the whole thing, but we don't. Note here. That in this pericope, 46, Mark 10, we're in 46 to 52. It's another healing story. If you have time in your small group, I ask you to reflect on what is similar and what is different between the healing of blind Bartimaeus, the only person who's healed who gets a name. Jairus' daughter kind of gets a name by association, (laughs) but Bartimaeus gets a real name. But note here we find two more titles for Jesus. Bartimaeus calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, a title for Jesus. And remember, like we were just saying about the Lord's glory, this is all caught up in this messianic vision. That the son of David is the one who will come and reestablish the kingdom, the glory days of his ancestor David. But another one... Let me find it. Jesus asks Bartimaeus, now this is a Mark and Sandwich, what do you want me to do for you? That is what he just asked James and John. So also, if you have time at home or in your small group, what is different between James and John's request and Bartimaeus's request? Jesus asked them the same question. This is interesting. What do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus replies, my teacher, let me see again. Some translations say, my teacher. Interestingly, this is not the Greek word for teacher, which 90% of the time, 99% of the time, is what the disciples, when the disciples call Jesus teacher, or the Pharisees call him teacher, it's the Greek word for teacher. Bartimaeus says, rabuni. Some of your translations might actually write out Rabuni, because it's a different word. 
This is an emphatic or a heightened form of the Hebrew word rabbi. It is only in two places in the New Testament. Here and in John, when the resurrected Jesus says Mary in the garden, and she replies, Rabuni. So that's cool. So what is the, reflect on this, what is the difference between James and John and Bartimaeus? And then I have this question in my notes, who's really the blind one? (laughs) Mark has done this thing again. Who really needs healing? Who really is the one who can't see? Let me sit at your right, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Let me see again. We did it. All right. Chapter 11. Things are going to just get even wilder, guys. Oh, that looks terrible. Man. All right. It's supposed to say week 12, Jesus in Jerusalem. Let's see if this is better. Here we go. Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. Remember, they're still on this journey. They're moving toward Jerusalem where Jesus has told them, though they don't get it, I am going to my death. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you. Immediately as you enter it, you will find there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Just say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here immediately. So they go and they find a colt tied outside. And just as Jesus said, verse 5, some of the bystanders said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus has said and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought their cloak, the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Already a few things to note that reach back to chapter 10. Remember, this is all one, it's all one story. Once again, we have crowds, Jesus going ahead. This time, Mark paints this beautiful picture. There are crowds ahead and crowds behind, with Jesus in the middle. And once again, Bartimaeus, this blind beggar in Jericho, who has said, Son of David, have mercy on me. The people are calling out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The New Revised Standard Version gender neutralizes it. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, which, of course, obscures the messianic emphasis. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of David. Bethany and Bethphage where they arrive. Bethany is a city about two miles from Jerusalem. Sorry, I'm taking us way back to the beginning of the text. I got excited about that whole David thing, but we'll get there. Bethany is a city about two miles from Jerusalem. It is going to be Jesus's home base of operations for this last week of his life. In John's gospel, it is the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They are not mentioned in Mark, but Mother Barbara opinion time, I think it is safe to assume that this is likely where he's staying. It is likely that Jesus and his disciples are staying with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany, about two miles from Jerusalem. Bethphage is on the Mount of Olives. The exact location is unknown. There's going to be a lot going on with the Mount of Olives this week. 
Jesus is going to go back and forth in this kind of triangle. The temple, Bethany, where he rests, and the Mount of Olives, where he goes with his disciple. The Mount of Olives has rich Old Testament significance, like all of this stuff does. This is from Zechariah 14, verses 4 through probably 6. I'm not going to read the whole thing. You all can either read it here or can look it up. But in Zechariah, specifically in the Old Testament prophecy more generally, the Mount of Olives is the place where the Lord, the glory of the Lord, descends in order for the final victory over Israel's enemies. So this is not just a geography. Remember, mountains are always a place of revelation, but this one is special. This is the place where the Lord will fight the final battle on behalf of Israel, where the Lord's victory will be total. Can you imagine how excited the disciples must be about this? They're coming to Jerusalem. This is happening, everybody. They're ready. And so Jesus gives them these instructions as they're getting close to Jerusalem. Maybe they're in Bethany, about two miles away, but they're getting close. Jesus shows a sort of prophetic vision. Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. So there's a lot of biblical scholars spend a lot of time talking about this. Some people say because they like to make scripture boring, that's my opinion, um, that like this is a deal Jesus has worked out with the owner of the donkey beforehand. He's been like, oh yeah, be sure to leave a colt there and then I'll, I'll come and get it. But like they don't have text messaging, so I don't really see how this makes sense. And two, it doesn't explain why people would object to the disciples taking the colt. The whole, the Lord has need of it, makes a lot less sense if what the disciples are doing seems, doesn't seem strange. Like, why didn't they just say, no, the owner of the donkey told us it's fine? (laughs) That's not what they say. So I think, Mother Barbara opinion, that Jesus is showing the same sort of prophetic vision. Remember, Jesus has, he's not a superhero, but he has this vision this, this sort of all-seeingness, like when he's on the mountain and he sees the disciples in the middle of the lake struggling at the oars. Because the Lord God of Israel is the one who sees and hears. I think that's what's going on. Why a donkey? Whoops, I didn't include that text. This relates to another verse in Zechariah, Zechariah 9, 9. You probably are familiar with this from um, hymnody. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. For lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the donkey. We always hear that part in the liturgy, but then we skip this next part. He will cut off the cherubim from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This taking of a colt, the foal of a donkey, is a prophetic sign Jesus is placing himself in the middle of this prophecy from Zechariah. So see, once again, the disciples aren't wrong. He is the Messiah. He is the one who fulfills the prophecy. He is the son of David. He is the king who is coming. The king who is coming riding on triumphantly into Jerusalem, which is, of course, the seat of the kingdom, (laughs) the center of the world. What they're wrong about is what that means. (laughs) 
So then Mark tells us that they spread their cloaks and branches along the way. This is likely the disciples and these, these other crowds. This also relates to an Old Testament verse, not in prophecy, but in history. That should say Second Kings. I don't know why it just says Kings. Second Kings 9.13. Then hurriedly they all took their cloaks and spread them for him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So this is a royal um, welcome that the people are making. According to the Gospel of John, they spread palm branches. Mark doesn't say that. It doesn't matter. It's just interesting. They maybe are. Mark just says stibus, which means straw, leaves, and branches. So they are paving the way for the king with, with whatever they can find. Um, palm is likely. It's a Mediterranean plant. So they are going ahead. There's, there's these people, this is what I said in the beginning, going ahead who are, are waving branches and proclaiming Hosanna in the highest and people who are following behind. There's this crowd, this royal procession and Jesus in the middle of it. And remember, the crowd is a character in Mark. This is not liter- <sighs> literarily, this is the, the crowds that have been amazed by Jesus from the beginning. It is probably not literally the same people because those were like poor Galilean fishermen and these are people in Jerusalem. But from the beginning of Jesus' Galilean ministry, the, the people have been catching on that something big is happening here. And so now there's this crowd going before him and going behind him. And what are they shouting? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Hosanna is a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew phrase. This is very interesting. The Hebrew phrase means, save us, we beseech thee. Generally, it is... A, a cry of need. In Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. Hosanna. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That would be the temple. The Lord is God, for he has given us light Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. So you see what's going on here. (laughs) Remember, oh, this is so cool. Jesus is the one who fulfills the law and the prophets. The history of the kings of Israel, they spread their cloaks before Jehu. The the Psalms, Jesus is, is living into this vision And interestingly, on the lips of the people in Jerusalem, Hosanna turns less from a cry of of desperation, save us, Lord. It takes on a different inflection, the Lord saves us. It becomes a shout of praise. And then you can't escape the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar as he goes into Jerusalem, the heart of which is the temple. On a donkey, the way Zechariah said the Messiah would be coming. Mark is making this, Jesus is making this so obvious no one can miss it. So Jesus enters Jerusalem and goes into the temple, verse 11. And I love this phrase. This is so Mark. And when he had looked around at everything, Jesus like, huh, okay. Ten out of ten temple. Well done, Herod, I guess. As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The first day of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. He looks around at the temple. Remember in John, 
Jesus comes to Jerusalem three times. In Mark, he only comes once. Once and he never leaves. I, well, after the resurrection he does, but he, he doesn't leave, isn't in part of this ministry. So there's this, Jesus is looking around at the temple, which of course is the throne of the Lord God. Temple is not, you know, we've talked about this before, the temple is not really the same thing as a church. It is the house of the Lord. And so he has come back to his house. And yet, he is the human Jesus looking around at it for the first time. So, these crowds, we don't know um, how big the crowd is. There's a sense in which the people get it. The people get that Jesus is the Messiah. Like I said, even the disciples get that part. They're clear. Peter said, you are the Messiah, the Lord. Blind Bartimaeus says, you are the son of David. And all of these things are, are, you know, coming true. But what kind of Messiah are they expecting? Note, too, just historically, that coming into Jerusalem as a king, not a risk-free move. The historian Josephus, a contemporary of Mark, um, records several would-be messiahs who do this sort of triumphal procession into the city. They declare themselves kings in Jerusalem, and the Roman authorities, every time, acted swiftly and mercilessly, usually in collusion with the Jewish authorities. So Jesus has made a, a, not only a religious statement, but a political one that is going to relate to why is it that everyone wants him dead. Not a risk-free move. Can you drink the cup I am to drink? Mark 11 verse 12 through 25, the fig tree and the temple. We always read this during Holy Week. It's our lectionary reading for Holy Monday. Um, and it's such, it's such a rich reading. On the following day, so this is day two of Jesus's time in Jerusalem, when they came from Bethany, where they have been saying, he was hungry. This is the only time in Mark, that Jesus' hunger is mentioned. And I think it's a powerful reminder that the Messiah is also human. That the Messiah has a body. This is going to matter. Remember, you know, post-resurrection in the first centuries of the church, there were a lot of um, religious groups that said, well, the Son of God couldn't possibly suffer in a human body. That's ridiculous. See, the disciples think it's ridiculous. And for like 200 years, a large portion of the church also thought it was ridiculous. So they came up with these, these theories that what happened is Jesus, this is if you, if you ever actually read um, the Gospel of Thomas or some of these, these other non-canonical texts, which are all written like 200 years after Mark, um, Jesus looks like a human, but he actually isn't. He actually is sort of an angelic God thing that looks human, and <laughs> in at least one of them, vacates the cross and puts another man in his place to die, <laughs> which is a dirty trick. <laughs> Not cool. So Mark is reminding us early on, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the one who will reign in glory, the king who comes in the name of the Lord, is a man who hungers. An early attestation of the church of Christ's humanity. So Jesus sees in the distance a fig tree in leaf, and he goes over to it to see if he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, 
for it was not the season for figs. I love that. So he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Put a pin in this. It's going to be an important part of a sandwich. A delicious fig sandwich. A fig tree in Israel, much of Israel, or Judea, I guess, um, most of the trees are evergreens. They're like olive trees. The fig tree is one of the few that would drop its leaves and grow new ones. A fig tree would be in leaf by Passover. So it's a symbol of the Passover of the Lord. Important point one. But two, it requires us to know something. Again, no Old Testament, no Jesus. The prophet Micah. Woe is me, for I have become like one who after the summer fruit has been gathered, after the vintage has been gleaned, finds no cluster to eat. There is no first ripe frig, frig, fig for which I hunger. The faithful have disappeared from the land, and there is no one left who is upright. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt each other with nets. Their hands are skilled to do evil. The official and the judge ask for a bribe. Hold on to all of this. And the powerful dictate what they desire, thus they pervert justice. This is the Lord God of Israel speaking about the corruption of the authorities, the leaders of the people. He looks for them and they do not bear fruit. This is all over the Old Testament when God says, when the the people cry out, Lord, judge the nations. And he says, I'm going to judge you, Israel. It's for two reasons. Idolatry and not caring for the poor. Idolatry and corruption. Idolatry and greed. And so this is another prophetic symbol. This is not Jesus being mean to the fig tree. This is sometimes how it's preached. Like that poor little fig tree, it wasn't even the season for figs. No, no. This is a sign act. This is as symbolic as riding a donkey. The faithful have disappeared from the land. And remember that Jesus is about to go into the temple where the corrupt scribes and chief priests are in collusion with Rome. This has to do with prophecy. So hold on to this. This is going to be a sandwich. So Jesus enters the temple. Verse 15. They came to the temple, he entered, they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers." When Jesus enters, apparently I skipped a, oh no, we're still in the same place. When Jesus enters the temple, he is likely in what they call the court of the Gentiles. This would be where Gentiles, who were what they call God-fearers, they were not circumcised, they were not descendants of Abraham, could come and offer sacrifice. Economic activity was expected in the court of the Gentiles. Changing money, selling animals for sacrifice, would be necessary. So why is Jesus mad? Again, sometimes this is preached like, you know, it was supposed to be like this pure temple where there was no money, and Jesus is mad about that, which is sort of a flat reading. Because as I said, you have to buy an animal for sacrifice. That's the whole point of the temple, is to have animals to sacrifice. But to understand why, we have to look at Jesus' citation of Scripture. 
when he quotes, my house shall be called a prayer, a house of prayer for all nations. This is from Isaiah 56, verse 7. I didn't put it on the slide, so I'll read it. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it and hold fast my commandment, these will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is what Jesus is referencing, this vision in Isaiah where Gentiles are drawn to the temple and worship the God of Israel. And interestingly, in Isaiah 56, you can look it up, it is immediately followed by criticism of the rulers of Israel who are corrupt and of Israel's idolatry. So Mark doesn't tell us that the temple authorities are corrupt. He doesn't say Jesus overturned the table because the people, the chief priests and the tax collectors were exploiting people. He assumes we know that because he assumes we've read Isaiah. Remember that chief priests are appointed by Rome. So this is another political act Jesus has done. He is cutting off money that is going to be going to the empire. He is calling out the leadership of the temple and saying, this is supposed to be a house of prayer and you've turned it into something else. This is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. So you see how this vision is already expanding outward. We start with Jesus, son of David, the Messiah of Israel, which he is. And then span, pan back to the temple where, where, yes, Israel has a special relationship with God, but all the nations will stream to it. Jesus is cleansing the temple from this, this not just, like it's not like money is bad, but from this, this corruption, this exploitation that is at the very heart of what should be most holy. Oh, this is good too. Why did I write this down? Okay, well, I don't know why this is here, but it's really good. Jeremiah 7. (laughs) I don't know what I was thinking, but this is... Oh, the den of robbers, that's why. Jesus says you've made a den of robbers. Okay, I'm I'm back, I'm back. Jeremiah chapter 7, (laughs) verses 8 through 11. Here you are, trusting in deceptive words for no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are safe, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name... Become a den of robbers in your sight. You know, I am watching, says the Lord. That's freaking awesome. (laughs) So when Jesus says, you have turned it into a den of robbers, he's quoting this passage from Jeremiah, a passage that is directly criticizing the authorities in Israel and specifically the authorities in the temple because they've been exploiting people and they've been committing these abominations and then they come into the temple and say we are safe we've got the lord god of israel don't be so confident jeremiah says don't be so confident you think chief priests and scribes you've made this cushy deal with rome where you get to be in charge and collect a bunch of money 
for sacrifices and no one will mess with you. But the prophecy of God's judgment is against you. That's, that's a really good passage. Jeremiah is awesome. Verse 18, And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. The chief priests and the scribes they know what prophecy he is referencing. They're, they're scribes. They're chief priests. They read the Bible for a living. They know what he's saying. So yeah, they're looking for a way to kill him. So then we go back to the fig tree. They've left the city. We're just going to do the fig tree, and then I think we have to stop, unfortunately. Um, They've left the city, and they pass the fig tree again. Verse 20. Oh, sorry. This is when they're coming back the next day. So this is now the third day. In the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and you do not doubt in your heart, but believe what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received, and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. This sounds like a non sequitur, but you all know that it's not, because why? The temple shall be a house of prayer for all nations. So see, the fig tree and the temple are connected. The fig tree is a prophetic sign that has not borne fruit. Just like Micah said, I looked for fruit and there was no fruit. It did not bear fruit, so Jesus curses it. Then he goes into the temple, which is supposed to be what? A house of prayer for all nations, but it's become a den of robbers. It isn't bearing fruit. It isn't doing, and specifically the people in it aren't doing the one thing they're supposed to do. They've taken it and turned it into something else. It isn't bearing fruit. 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. So Jesus curses the fig tree the way he curses, in a, a cleansing sort of way, the temple authorities. Woe to you! This relates, the lesson from the withered fig tree relates to the song of the vineyard in Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. We actually read this in the liturgy fairly recently. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower. The temple is often compared to a watchtower. And he hewed a wine vat in it, but it yielded wild grapes. It did not yield good grapes. Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. He expected justice but saw bloodshed, righteousness, but heard a cry. The vineyard has not produced fruit. Sorry, I was reading ahead to the parable of the wicked tenants. But that's okay, because I think my point still stands. 
<laughs> that the fig tree and the temple are connected. When Jesus is cursing the fig tree, it's not actually about the fig tree. It's about what fruit has been born here and where is God's judgment going to come. Do not be so sure. Do not be like those in Jeremiah who stand there and say, we are safe. We don't have time to talk about the parable of the wicked tenants. It's 1030. Talk about it in your small groups. Yeah, Kathy. Oh, sorry. I forgot to announce that. Next week's questions are good, too. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you all very much. I will see you next week.